0: Wow. With that kind of intro, it sounds like I'm going to talk about something really horrible, doesn't it? <laughs> There's all these hostility and obstacles, and and there may be. But anyway, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Kevin King. My uh, wife is not with me today. Her name is Jeannie. We have two kids. My son's a sophomore in college. My daughter's a senior going to uh, college next year. Um, it was great coming here this morning. I stayed over at the Best Western, and I drove and There were just fields and farms out in the distance and I was just like, ah, you guys don't know how good you have it. I live in Harlem in Manhattan and it looks very different and I drove across, which I've done maybe five or six times in my life, I drove across a covered bridge, which was so wonderful. I actually almost stopped and took a picture, but you texted me and said, where are you? I was like, all right, all right, I'm coming, I'm coming. (laughs) Um... So uh, we're a part of a ministry in New York City called International Project, and uh, what we do is we reach unreached people groups who are in the West and in the United States and in different cities. Um, Our vision initially, um, well, when I was in seminary, God really put on my heart just the desire to reach unreached people groups, people who have little or no opportunity to hear the gospel. And I said, God, where do you want me to go? And the short version is God opened up the opportunity of reaching foreigners who come to us, um, went to New York City where we have 52 different unreached people group communities in the city, not to mention 60 to 70,000 international students who come through, 25 to 30,000 workers with the United Nations. So the world is coming to New York City and it's giving us an incredible opportunity uh, to share the good news of Christ, see people come to, cr- to Christ and see churches started. Um, the interesting thing is that When I started, you know, when we started in this ministry about 20 years ago, New York City was kind of unique you know people said oh yeah that's like a different country that's different there and that was probably true but now with the great migration that's happening around the world New York City is not really unique anymore God is moving people from all the different nations to all different parts of the US and other countries around the world and not only in big cities but in smaller cities and even in the suburbs and when I spoke at Lancaster Bible College they talked about how per square uh, capita, as far as population, there are more foreigners in Lancaster than any other city in the United States based on the population. So a lot's happening. And one thing that I know when I give this talk is that this is a sensitive, sensitive topic. I mean, there's a lot of emotion stirring around this issue. Um, and I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm going to do. What I'm, I'd like to do is give an overview in Scripture of how migration is part of God's plan to see the gospel taken to the nations. And when I give this presentation, you are going to be tempted to feel like I'm trying to give a political message. And I can tell you right now, I'm not. I'm not trying to give a political message. What I'm trying to do is trying to give a biblical perspective because oftentimes the news media and and our personal emotions are flowing, and sometimes we don't have a biblical perspective of what God is doing in terms of migration and how we should think about migration. Um, tonight, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk a little bit more, touch a little bit more on some politics. Um and just some other passages in scripture. But this morning, I'm just going to give a broad overview of scripture. And basically, again, as I said, how God is using migration to bring the gospel to the nations. All right. Now, in scripture, it uses terms, when it refers to foreigners, it uses terms, we use terms like immigrant, migrant, Refugee. Scripture uses terms like foreigner, uh, alien, stranger, and so forth. So these are the common terms that we see in Scripture. What we're going to look at today is that migration happens for a whole number of reasons in Scripture. One is that people are forced to migrate when they're rejecting God, people are called to migrate when following God. So migration is part of God's redemptive purposes. We're going to see that that people are led to migrate in order to learn how to trust God. The gospel is received by those who are migrating. The gospel is carried by those who are migrating. And we as believers are actually called to think like people who are aliens and foreigners in the world. So we're going to try to cover all of this this morning, and we're basically going to start at the beginning of the Bible and just kind of walk through um, and look at different passages that refer to migration. Now let me say this, that we are only going to cover a fraction of the passages that talk about migration. There are many others that we just don't have time to look at. All right, now, as we start, and this is going to be somewhat interactive, can anybody tell me the first place in Scripture where we see the beginning of migration? Anyone? Where was that? The garden. Someone just said the garden. That's exactly right. So in the garden, what we see is Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and because of that, they were forced out of the garden. Now, sometimes, I, you know, uh, again, I live in Harlem, so when I think of a garden, I think of maybe like a, a, a patch of 20 by 20 square foot. You guys, when you think of a garden, you're probably much thinking much bigger. But this garden could have been the size of a nation. We don't know. But what we do know is this was their home. This was their culture. And they were forced out to go to other places. So migration begins in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. After that, what do we see? We see in Genesis 4, continuing on this issue with Adam and Eve, Cain, because of his sin, he's disciplined by God. And look at what God says his punishment will be in Genesis 4. It says, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear today. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth." So again, he's forced to migrate as a restless wanderer on the earth. All right, where's the next place migration happens? How about Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel? Now, this is the beginning of global migration. So it's interesting, uh, secular sociologists and secular anthropologists all agree that humanity started on this in this world on this planet in a certain location and from that one location spread around the entire globe. That's what secular sociologists and anthropologists say. That's exactly what scripture says. Actually, I believe because it's true. And the interesting thing is that the locations that the secular sociologists say and this location that scripture says is actually very, very close. But what we see is that from one place, humanity began on this planet. And from this one location, it spread throughout the entire globe. And that God, here we see in Genesis 11, that God is sovereignly a part of of orchestrating this global migration. Look at what it says in Genesis 11. It says, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is global migration, and God's hand is a part of it. All right, next place we see, well, actually, I'll just show you a little picture here. I forgot this was here. This is in New York City. This is on 116th Street in Manhattan. I live on 123rd Street. In my neighborhood, there's 100,000 West African Muslims from Senegal, Burkina Faso, Mali, all different West African countries, and they there's a, 116th Street is called Little Africa, and this is in the Senegalese Association where we have team members working with Wolof people who speak Wolof. When you go there, you would not know you were in New York City. They dress like they do in Africa. They interact with the same culture, same language. They eat the same foods. Uh, God has brought people, unreached people groups from West Africa to New York City. And do you know that there are probably only 100 Wolof believers in the world? 100 Wolof believers in the world. There was none in New York City. And then about a year ago, we saw the first Wolof woman in New York City come to faith in Christ. You see, God's desire is to have people from every language, tribe, nation around his throne worshiping him. That's his desire. And And God has orchestrated where this one woman would come to faith and we believe she's going to be the beginning of many others coming to faith from the Wolof people group from Senegal in New York City. All right, let's move on as we look through scripture. Genesis 12, someone else said Abram. Now, Abram is the first place in scripture where we see God using migration for redemptive purposes. It's part of his plan to see the gospel taken to the nations ultimately. But what we see is Abram, who is then later called Abraham, God says to Abram in Genesis 12, he says, the Lord had said to Abram, so I want you to, uh, so go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. So God is sending him away from his people, away from his country to a different land. And it's through Abraham that all the nations of the earth are blessed. And God is now using Abraham for redemptive purposes and migration is part of that. All right. Now, we'll just, actually I should, before I give too much away by moving ahead. So we see that Abraham moves away to a new land. And then he has a son Uh, He has a a number of sons, but we see Abraham, and then we see the next son in the line for the promise is Isaac. And then after Isaac, we have Jacob. Okay, now Jacob has how many sons? Twelve sons, and these become the twelve tribes of Israel. One of the sons that Jacob has, and Jacob's name is actually also changed to, to Israel. So Jacob becomes Israel. But one of the sons that Jacob has is Joseph. Now, you guys know the story, so I won't give all the details. But Joseph starts bragging to his brothers about some of the dreams that he's having. And his brothers really get ticked off. So some of them want to kill Joseph, but, you know, he doesn't get killed. What they decide to do is sell him as a slave to uh, Egypt okay? So now previously, Abraham left his country and went to this foreign land. Abraham left, and he left as a migrant. He left as a foreigner. He left as an alien. Now we have Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt, and he is also leaving as a political foreigner. Maybe, I don't know if we would say a political refugee. He's not seeking refuge. He's probably, probably more in terms of maybe, you know, like in sex trafficking, people are taken as slaves and prisoners and carried away to foreign lands. So he's a political foreigner, and he goes off to Egypt. Now, Joseph is in Egypt for a number of years. You guys know the situation he has with Potiphar's wife and different people, and then he gets put in prison. Eventually, he becomes number two in all of Egypt. There is a a period of great blessing on the land of seven years. We know this from Joseph's dream. And Joseph is orchestrating all of the food being gathered up and saved because Joseph knows that there's going to be seven years of famine that will follow. Okay. Now, these seven years of famine begin, and they're not only affecting Egypt, but they're affecting the entire region, other countries all around. And Jacob, I'm sorry, not Jacob, uh, yes, Israel, Jacob with his children are also experiencing this famine. So Jacob says to his sons, I want you to go to Egypt. We know that they have food there. I want you to go and buy food. So Jacob's children, the brothers, the 12 brothers, the 11, go to Egypt, and they meet Joseph again for the first time in many, many years. Listen to what it says when Jacob, I'm sorry, when Joseph confronts his brothers. Listen to what he says. He says, and now, he says to his brothers, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God did this. So then it was not you who sent me, but God, he made me father to Pharaoh and Lord of the entire household and ruler of all Egypt. So God was divinely orchestrating the events in Joseph's life. God was divinely orchestrating the events and the affairs that happened with Joseph and his brothers so that Joseph would be sent to Egypt as a political foreigner and through that whole event that God would rescue his people and bring salvation to his people to his brother physical salvation so Joseph's brothers go down they buy food they go back to his father they tell the whole story there's more details we won't get into and then Jacob then eventually moves to Egypt the whole family moves there as what they move there as refugees they move to Egypt as refugees Why do we say that? Because they were seeking refuge. They were starving to death. There was famine. And they moved to Egypt in order to to be rescued and to be saved. And they went to Egypt as refugees. Now, they were in Egypt for how many years? 400 years. Now, 400 years they were in Egypt. That's longer than the U.S. has been a country, Okay. They were there. That was part of their culture now. Hundreds of years were going by. Um, ev- ev- initially, the Pharaoh liked Joseph, and then some Pharaohs went by, but it eventually got bad. We do know that the Israelites were multiplying rapidly. Their number was growing, and now it was okay before that we had these Jews there in Egypt, because we would put them off to the side. And look, Egyptians did not like Jews. We know that they would not even eat with them. It was fine when we had just a few. But now they're becoming too populous. Now they're taking some political control. Now when we have votes, they have influence. Okay, so now they, the pharaoh becomes threatened. This pharaoh that's there after 400 years. They start to oppress the Jews. They, there's political oppression. The Jews call out to God... God then sends who? Moses. Now, let's talk about Moses for a second. Moses, is Moses in Egypt at this point? Is Moses in Egypt? No. Moses left Egypt how many years prior? Moses left Egypt 40 years before as what was he leaving as? He was leaving as a refugee. I don't know if you remember Moses, but he got into this argument with other Egyptians who were abusing the Jews. He killed one of them. He was afraid for his life. He thought he would be killed. So he, he took off to the land of Goshen. No, uh, to the land of um, Her- What was the Anybody know? Anyway, he took off. <laughs> they were living in Goshen in Egypt. But Moses left 40 years prior as a refugee. Okay, God calls him back to Egypt, and through Egypt, uh, through through Moses, goes to the Pharaoh and says, "Let my people go." You guys know the story. Pharaoh says, "No." Moses says, "I really encourage you to let my people go." Moses says, "I don't think so. They're a really good workforce, and we can pay them really low wages. So we're not going to let them go. A matter of fact, we're not paying them anything, and we want them to produce more." Moses says, let them go. If not, these plagues will happen. The Pharaoh doesn't believe it. The plagues begin to happen. One, two, three, four. He gets Moses, I mean, the the Pharaoh starts giving in, but then his heart gets hardened again. What we see in scripture is that God's behind and involved in all of this stuff. The 10th plague comes. God says, look, to the nation of Israel, I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to kill the lamb, And take the blood of the lamb and put it over the door frame of your house. Whoever has the blood of the lamb over the door frame of their house, when the angel of the Lord passes over Egypt, he will pass over that house and death will not come to that house. Whoever does not have the blood of the lamb over the door frame of their house, the firstborn child in that house, the firstborn son will die. Okay. Now, Just as a quick little tangent here, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. Whoever has the blood of Jesus over their life, death passes over that person. Whoever does not have the blood of Jesus, the blood of the lamb over the door frame of of their house, their life, death comes to this house. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. So the angel goes over, and all of the firstborns of the Egyptians die. Uh, Pharaoh finally says, Get out. The Israelites leave Egypt, okay? And now they're headed where? And they leave as what, by the way? They leave Egypt as refugees because their, their lives are in danger. They're starving, they're being tortured, they're being oppressed. They leave as refugees, political refugees, okay? So even though the politics are happening all behind the scenes and we have ambassadors going to the Pharaoh and trying to do diplomatic relations to make things right, it doesn't work out. But God's involved in this whole process and the Israelites leave as refugees. And where are they heading? Where? They're heading to the promised land, Now listen, the promised land is a major part of the entire scriptures. The promised land that God is going to give us, the promised land, is the whole theme is about migration. It's about leaving one land and going to a new land where you will settle and be blessed. That was the promised land. All right, so God rescues Jacob and his family through Joseph. The family migrates to Egypt. Moses flees to Egypt and settles as a foreigner. Uh, flees, uh, flees from Egypt and settles as a foreigner. We see this in Acts 7, 29. It says this, When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Moses, uh, and what does just say? One of them he named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been born a sojourner in a foreign land. So n- Moses actually named one of his sons after the fact that he was a foreigner. Okay, God rescues the Israelites from Egypt. Migration begins again. They are now in the wilderness headed toward the Promised Land. And how long are they in the wilderness for? 40 years. They're headed to the Promised Land. Do you know how long it takes to walk from Egypt to the Promised Land, which is now which is physical Israel as we know it? Do you know how long it actually takes to walk from Egypt to the Promised Land? It takes about 2 weeks. 2 weeks. To walk from Egypt to the Promised Land, they could have gone there in two weeks. But what do we know happened? Well, we know that uh, God sent twelve spies in. They went in and looked at the land. They they said, "This is a wonderful land. This is a great place that God is sending us to." But they were afraid because of the people that were there. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe. They were afraid. And so, because of their lack of faith, because of their lack of belief, God said you will not enter, and he basically, they had to wander in the the wilderness for 40 years prior to going into the the promised land. Now, it's interesting when they're wandering around the desert, which is really kind of like Cain, who was wandering around, restless, wandering around with no place to settle, no place to call home, um, that God uses this migration in order to do something Within their hearts to learn, for them to learn how to trust God. Look at what it says in Numbers chapter 9 when it talks about how God was leading them through the wilderness, through the desert. Um, But before we go there, I want to say does anybody remember how God led them through the desert? Uh, They would follow this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And whenever the cloud would settle down over the tabernacle, that's when the Israelites unpacked everything. They set up their tents. They unpacked all of their, their cattle. They put up the tabernacle, which was a portable temple. I mean, it was a major ordeal. There was hundreds of thousands of people. So this was not an easy uh, packing and unpacking. This was, a, this was a, a, an incredibly big event to unpack and repack. So they would do that, and then when the cloud lifted, then they would pack everything up and follow. Now look at what it says in Numbers 9. What we see is God keeps them stopping and starting. He keeps them from settling down. Oh, he must have taken that out. Anyway, I'll tell you what it says. It says this. It says, sometimes they were in, and you can read this in Numbers 9, sometimes they were in a location for a year, and when the cloud came down, they would settle. And when it lifted, they would pick up. Sometimes for only a month. Sometimes for only a week. Sometimes they would be there for only a day or two. And God would have the cloud pick back up and they would keep going. Now, if I settled for a year, I'd be like, okay, this makes sense. You know, God can move us because maybe uh, the flocks don't have enough food. So we'll move on. But if I was there for a month and God had the cloud lift, I'd be a little frustrated. I'd say, God, why, why don't you just take us to a place where we need to go and just have us settle there? But if I was there for a week or two days, and we unpacked everything and set up, and we thought we would be there, not knowing where we would live, and then the cloud lifts, I can tell you, I'd be really, really angry and frustrated with God, and I'd say, God, why are you doing this? Why are you tormenting us? And there's something about being unsettled in our spirit and not settling down that keeps us spiritually receptive. Has anybody here ever moved? (laughs) Do you know it's like one of the most stressful things in life? I mean, obviously there's things like death and, you know... You know some other big ones. But moving is on the list for one of the most stressful things in life. And one of the things that happens when you move is you start packing everything up and one of the questions you ask is what? Where did I get all this stuff? Did you ever pack all your stuff in boxes? You're like, I have so much stuff. And what I find, because I've moved probably five times in my life, is I realize that I have far too much stuff and I don't need it. And another thing I realize is as I get settled and as I get comfortable, I become less flexible. I become less receptive. There are times in our lives where we say, God, I will do whatever you want me to do. My hands are completely open. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll give up whatever you want me to give up. Everything in my life is in my hands right here before you. Take what you want. And then we start to get settled. And then we, sometimes we don't even know it's happening, but our hands begin to close. We say, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do, but surely you wouldn't want me to sell my house. And we begin to take that off the table. God, I just moved in a year ago, and you know, I'll lose money if I move now. You see God doesn't always work according to our logic. God surely you wouldn't want me to my my daughter or my son to go to the mission field overseas. I mean, I'll give you anything but don't take them. I want to be with my grandkids and we take that off the table. God, I'll go wherever you want me to go, but don't send me to the city. And we take that off the table. You see Moving and not getting settled is a way of keeping our hearts spiritually receptive because when we get settled, we begin to cling on to stuff in this world. We begin to build our security around stuff in this world and we're not willing to follow God. And when that happens, our heart begins to drift away from God. And we actually see this happening to Israel as well. But one of the things we see about the immigrant, the foreigner, the stranger, the alien, is that they're unattached. Um, they're vulnerable. They are adaptable. They have to be. They're teachable because they have to learn new places and learn new cultures. And and all of this forces you to depend on God. And they're unsettled. This is characteristics of people who are who are. Are foreigners and aliens, but this is also common. These are also common characteristics for people who are spiritually receptive. I was um, about, probably six months ago watching the news, and I saw in the news thousands of people walking through a field. This was in Europe. I think they were probably walking through Turkey. From the Middle East, they were walking through this field, and they were trying to get to another country. Because they, their lives were in danger because of war, so they were walking and walking and walking, and they got to the border. I think it might have been Turkey. It might have been another another country. Maybe, uh, um, maybe um, oh, it doesn't matter. But one of the Europe one of the European countries. They got to the border, and when they got there, there was a fence up with barbed wire, and there were security guard, you know, soldiers with machine guns, and they couldn't go through. And just that very day, and I was processing through this because, you know, politically, you'd say, well, you know, look, every country can't have an open border. We'll talk a little bit more about that tonight because you might think that I'm for open borders, but I can just tell you, I'm absolutely not. I'm absolutely not. I think we need to have strong borders with high vetting. We'll talk later about that. Um, But but you gotta understand, so, you have this political feeling but let's also understand what's happening in God's heart for people. You see this talk is not about policy this is about people this is not about America this talk is about God's kingdom and God's desire to see people from every nation tribe and language around his throne. This talk is about God this is do you realize that God is not American. God is he's over all the nations And he desires people from every tribe. And do you know that God loves people from other nations just as much as he loves us? And so you you see these pictures on the news, and it was something, I saw this picture, and then I was just reading through the Psalms, and I'd never seen this before, but it's the perfect picture of a refugee. Listen to what it it says in Psalm 107. It says this. It says, Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. That's the picture of a refugee. They don't have a city where they could settle. And what do they do? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Who did it? He did it. God led them to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, and it goes on. You see, God is behind migration. God is behind migration. And what happens is while people are migrating, they become spiritually receptive. Well, look, it says they're wandering around. Their lives are ebbing away. What do they do? They cry out to the Lord. 9-11 changed things dramatically in the world. Do you know that more Muslims have come to faith since 9-11 than there had been for the past, the previous 1,300 years. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are turning to Christ all over the world. God is doing something incredible. For the first time, Muslims are starting to see, wait, Islam is not what I thought it was. Many Muslims are starting to realize Islam is violent, violent. And they're now, instead of being colonized by Westerners who are quote-unquote Christians who are oppressing them, now they're part of countries where their governments are led by by Islamic rules and they're oppressed. And there are many, many Muslims who are now turning and saying, I want to know God. And many are seeing dreams and visions and miraculous things are happening. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims are coming to faith. And God's using migration as part of his plan to see this happen. The very worst thing that we can do is when we encounter a Muslim to treat them with disdain and disgust. These are people who bear the image of God, who the Father loves deeply. Who These are people who the Father sent his only son to die and suffer for. These people. And how is it that we can then say, go home. Listen, I'll just share a little bit right now. I am for, I'm actually for a big wall. I'll be honest with you. I'm for a wall. I'm for really high security. I don't think anybody should be here illegally. I really don't. I don't think they should. But you know what? I take my political feelings and I say, look, I'm going to vote a certain way. But when I interact with the 100,000 Muslims in my neighborhood, I don't care if they're here legally. I don't care if they're here illegally. It doesn't matter. I am going to love them in the name of Jesus. I'm going to build a relationship with them. I'm going to share the gospel with them. It's about God's heart. It's not about our country's laws. It's not about my political feelings. It's about God's heart to reach the nations. And my desire to see people come to Jesus has to be higher than my desire for my political feelings. It has to be, because before I am an American, I am a Christian. Before I am an American, I am a follower of Jesus and I will seek to have his heart. It doesn't matter how I feel about these things. I mean, it does in a sense, but it doesn't, this compared to leading people to Jesus and reaching the nations, that doesn't even, that's just a blip on the screen. So when you look at people like this, you have to, you have to, your heart has to go out to them and you have to say, oh, I would, if my children were in a place of war and famine, I would do anything I could. I would not care if this country says you can't come in. I will try to get in to save my family. I would do that. I would. And they are too. They are too. Now, do I think we should let them in? (laughs) I don't. I said, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't know what the answer is. But I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm really here to talk about God's heart. I'm here to talk about God's heart and how, look, the fact is, is that migration is all through Scripture and God's orchestrating it. So is this topic confusing? It's extremely confusing. We have people on our teams who feel like we should have open borders and let everybody in and just love them in the name of Jesus. We have other people on our teams who say, look, we need to have really high security. They're, they're, it's dangerous to let people in. And you know what? I probably, for. but you know what? Both groups of people have a passion and a desire to reach Jesus. And they take these political agendas and they say, look, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to love people in the name of Jesus. In, uh, we'll just David was a political refugee. We see this in Samuel uh, Samuel 27. We're just going to pass through that. Um, due to the hardness of the, the people's hearts, God then sends his people into captivity. So what we see is that, I'm going to step back, the nation finally gets into the promised land. They finally settle down. Hundreds and, and hundreds of years go by. And what happens? As they get settled, as they get comfortable, what do they start to do? They start to chase after other gods. They start to worship other gods. They they move toward idolatry. They're settled, they're comfortable, and all of a sudden their heart starts moving toward idolatry. And what does God do? He brings in another nation. Again, God's sovereignly orchestrating the events, the political events of the nations. God brings in another nation. They become captives. They go off to, you have the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity. They're spread out in different places. And all of a sudden, now they're spiritually receptive again. God, okay, I'm ready to hear you now. I'll come back to you. And then what do we see? We see Nehemiah, Daniel, Ezra. All of these books are books written as the people are in captive, as political foreigners, as more political foreigners in distant lands. All of these books, you see, the whole Old Testament is about migration. It's it's really a whole story about migration. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all political foreigners. God says over and over and over again in Scripture, he says this. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God is doing this. He loves the foreigner. Now actually it mentions three groups. It mentions the fatherless. It mentions the widow and it mentions the foreigner. What's the common characteristic in all three of these groups? They're all vulnerable. They're all needy. These are all people who These are all people who call out to God and say God, I don't know how it's going to work out. They're all vulnerable people. And it says, God loves them, gives them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Don't you remember? This is in New York City. This is um, one of our teams is engaging uh, an area of Arab Muslims, and this is a Muslim community center and this is an art workshop i love this story i think my time's almost up so we'll just have to continue on tonight but i love this story so, yeah my time's pretty much up <laughs> let me tell you this story real quickly and then we're going to pick up tonight cuz we haven't even gotten to the new testament yet and i have some other things to share which are really cool we have a team who has built a relationship with a muslim community center and their vision there their passion is to to lead people to jesus now in the Quran, the name of Jesus is Isa, And it's Isa al-Masih, which is Jesus the Messiah. Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's Isa al-Masih. They believe he's just a prophet. They don't believe he's God. They don't believe he died on the cross and so forth. But they believe he's Isa al-Masih. And they honor him as a prophet. And so we have this relationship with this community center. And one of our uh, team members goes and they're doing stuff there. And the director, who's a Muslim woman, finds out, that this girl does art workshops. So the Muslim director says, well, can you do some art workshops for our young ladies in the community center? And our teammate says, well, really my art workshop is all about how Isa al-Masih has changed my life. And the director said, okay, no problem. And she said, well, throughout the workshop, I talk about how Isa al-Masih really changed my life and how I'm following him. And the, the director says, okay, that's no problem. Can you do the workshop? And then our teammate said, well, listen, I just need to make it clear that every time we meet, every time, every art project is all about how Isa Amasi changed my life. It's every time. She said, okay, no problem. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, this is a snapshot of just a, a cell phone shot of probably 50 Muslim, 50 Muslim girls just sitting, doing this art workshop, hearing about how Isa Amasi do you realize hundreds of thousands of bundles are coming to Christ all over? God is doing something incredible because he desires to see people from every nation, tribe around his throne. God's doing something big. God's doing something big. And he calls us again and again and again to love the foreigner. He calls us to do that. And the reason he does it over and over again is because the, the Israelites, the Jews, they also didn't want to love the foreigner. They didn't like the foreigners. And God says, love them. And they had their own reasons for not liking the foreigner. Probably some of their reasons were like this. If too many foreigners come in, it's going to change our culture. And you know what? It's probably true. And they didn't like that. And God says, love them. And they were like, but if too many foreigners come in, it might be dangerous. And you know what? That might be true. But God says, love them. You see, God's not unaware of the issues that are in their hearts. He's not. And yet he says, love them Because I love them. So what does it mean? It means we're in a real conundrum, doesn't it? Emotionally. It means we have to really work some things out in our hearts. Because, you know, George Barna says that there's a major, major uh, prejudice against and a real feeling in America against foreigners coming in to America, right? Obviously. And he says this. He says that it's the highest in evangelical churches. The hatred is the highest in evangelical churches. God's not calling us to hate. So look, this again is not a talk about how you vote. This is a talk about how you love. This is not a talk about what your political position is. This is a talk about how you pursue people and love them for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of Jesus, for God's heart who loves those people. And God is actually behind migration. And we are all here because of migration. And first it was the English, and then when the Irish came, which is my, my mother's grandmother migrated from Ireland, the Irish were hated, and then the Italians came, and they were hated, and then this group came, and they were hated. It's just happening. All, it's just the, the story of America. And God is calling us to think differently as believers, not as historians, as believers. Anyway, I wish I had more time to finish all of the, but we will, tonight we will look through the New Testament and some other things about, and I just want to share some of the incredible stories of how God is using uh, migration to bring people to Himself. We're seeing churches started in other countries as a result of people coming here, them coming to know Jesus, reaching family members. God is on the move. God is on the move. I know this is a, this is a really deep, sensitive topic, and we need to say, God, how do you want us to think? as believers. So Lord, let's just pray right now. Father, thank you so much.